0: Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. My name is Jim Hempill, and I'm a contributing writer at American Cinematographer Magazine. The title character in the new film Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Lightning Thief, is a 17-year-old who quickly learns that he has bigger problems than passing algebra tests or finding a date to the prom. It turns out that Percy's father is Poseidon, god of the sea, which means that Percy is a demigod, half-human, half-god. This would be overwhelming enough, but Percy also finds out that he's being wrongly accused by Zeus, the king of all gods, of stealing Zeus's all-powerful lightning bolt. In order to save himself and stop a war among the gods that could destroy the earth itself, Percy joins forces with two fellow demigods on a road trip that takes them across America and into hell itself. Along the way, the trio meets a variety of legendary characters from Greek mythology, including Medusa, Hades, and Persephone, and engages in a series of rousing battles to save the world. The film's director of photography is Stephen Goldblatt, ASC and BSC. An acclaimed cinematographer with multiple Oscar, Emmy, and ASC award nominations to his credit, Goldblatt has done superb work on everything from intimate character studies, like Closer, to action films, including the first two Lethal Weapon movies. And he's worked with a variety of notable directors, including Francis Coppola, Barry Levinson, and Mike Nichols. In 2007, he was honored by the Hollywood Film Festival as Cinematographer of the Year, and that same year he received a Lifetime Achievement Award from Camera Image, the International Cinematographers Film Festival in Poland. Percy Jackson is his second film with director Chris Columbus, following their collaboration on the musical Rent, and like that film, it blends extreme stylization with contemporary urban reality, though in very different ways. In Goldblatt's hands, the unlikely combination of Greek mythology and modern-day American life becomes a perfect synthesis of epic adventure and emotional truth, a coming-of-age story as relatable as it is spectacular. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Hi. Um, Looking over your resume, one's immediately struck by the diversity of films, both in terms of subject and scale. Uh, And I'm, I'm wondering what attracts you to a project, and more specifically, what attracted you to Percy Jackson?
1: Well, the thing is, I I, I always start a project with boundless enthusiasm about two, three months in, six days a week, 16 hours a day, or whatever it happens to be. I always dream of the grass being greener somewhere else. So I was doing uh, Julie and Julia, which was a reasonably small scale, and 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 it had real budgetary constraints, and that's all fine. But I was hoping... I was looking forward to using bigger toys and a broader canvas, and so when this project was came up, I, I was attracted to it. I I, I never like to do the same thing, time after time. I always like to uh, keep myself guessing.
0: mm mm-hmm. And this is your second film with with Chris Columbus. I was wondering uh, if you could talk a little bit about that relationship and what makes it so productive, and how it changed from Rent to Percy Jackson, if it if it did.
1: Well. Each, each time you work with the same person, it becomes easier because there's a level of trust. It's it's professional and personal. I mean, the, the relationship is so intimate. And the first time, it's almost like an arranged marriage. It's uh, It has all the trappings of intimacy, but with, with no background, no history, you know? So the second time you work with uh, a director, assuming you got on fine before, um, it... it Everything becomes easier because there's, there's a real shorthand. I I hope that I can become the director's eyes, and uh, there's less second guessing, and and there's really on both sides there's there's less fear. It, it's a more it's always it's always regardless a more pleasant experience.
0: And and what were your initial conversations with him about the film like when he first first brought it to you?
1: Well, in truth, he he wanted to sort of work on a film that was very accessible for a family audience, which is not something I'm particularly familiar with. But it's it's been sort of his specialty in a way, all the way from Home Alone through Harry Potter, and so he didn't want the style to be too esoteric, you know, mm-hmm. and to um. And then the other half of the conversation was a, a, a time constraint. The, the film, for various reasons, mainly from the studio, had to be done with a, a very abbreviated prep and post-production. So we had to shoot in a way that was um, not necessarily best for uh, the dramatic content, but was best for to get the visual effects made in, in, in as timely a fashion as as was humanly possible, and it was almost inhuman it, to uh, to undertake what we did we, we We succeeded, I think, but it was uh, that was a, a great part of the methodology of making this film was how to squeeze an enormous amount of work into quite a small time frame.
0: How much prep time did you have?
1: I had at most eight weeks. Um, on a film that was immensely complicated, I could easily, I could. It would have been very beneficial to have had twelve.
0: Right, and and Percy Jackson is is very different from Rent in that Rent, uh, I'm assuming, wasn't very heavy on digital effects, and Percy Jackson is packed with them. So, what yeah. kind of preparation does an effects oriented film like this require? What what went on in that eight weeks of prep?
1: Well, a lot of a lot of that. Prep is to do with what a, what's called the pre-visualization, in which uh, a sophisticated animation is is rendered, and it's a, it's then approved by Chris, by Chris Columbus, by the director, and uh, by the visual effects supervisor, <clears throat> and then it's my job to see how the live action, which is what I I was concerned with, would fit, how it would work, and and with Howard Cummings, the designer, how that would all work into it. So it's integrating the intent of the pre-visualization into a physical reality, you know, the sets and the camera, the lighting, the movement, and and also bearing in mind how much of the visual flavor of the film has got to be informed by what will happen to it subsequently, you know, once it enters visual effects, but also how the visual effects must, in itself, reflect what what is the reality of the real people real sets real locations real light and a lot of the prep is going around and around these problems because they they are complicated there's no doubt You, you can't approach it casually and I spend a great deal of time trying to set these looks and then trying to work out a workflow between my cinematography my lighting dailies visual effects the laboratory and just controlling the color the look so that when we had dailies chris would say i like that or i don't like that whichever but so that we could we could get a look that everybody was happy with but particularly the, the director myself and and then that could be communicated to visual effects and to all their vendors because they they were working at a breakneck speed seven days a week to get to complete this work, and of course to Howard Cummings, the designer, because he was the sets were in no way completed, we were experimenting and uh, getting things done and working weekends and nights and 24 hour shifts and all sorts of stuff, those circumstances things can go very wrong, so I, I see some of my as the sort of eyes of the director, as the visualizer, the cinematographer, in a visual effects film, a lot of my work was to to bring this all into into one circle. So we were all working on the same project visually.
0: Right. So it, so at this point, how close a collaboration do you have with, uh, say, Howard Cummings, the production designer? Been...
1: Uh, I I uh, in prep, I I'll I will try to live in the art department. I really will. Of course, we would. Uh, Howard was doing some wonderful. His staff were doing wonderful paintings, full-scale full, full scale renderings of <clears throat> imaginative ideas. <clears throat> For example, what does uh, Olympus look like? What does Hades look like? What does uh, Lotus Bottom Casino look like? All those things can be, can be imagined and painted. And then he's got to design his sets, and then I've got to light those sets and work out how the camera can move. And if none of these things are in each other's um, arena. You know, if we don't talk with each other, and communicate, if our departments don't talk one to the other, it it can be a catastrophe. For example, for reasons of caste, we were taking over a set or a number of sets, a stage, a number of stages where a night at the museum had been uh, photographed and the sets had been constructed and they still stood and we were... For time and cost, taking these over, Howard was changing them, but it often meant that camera moves that I was planning, say, with a 50-foot technical crane with uh, Percy Jackson flying through a replica of the Parson interior, the bucket couldn't, couldn't swing. We couldn't swing the, uh, the crane in the way we would need to do. We couldn't move because the original structure, which was not being torn down, hadn't been built with this, obviously, with this script in mind, with these ideas in mind. So we had to do some very precise calculations with uh, tape measures and angles and using 3D, 3D uh, modeling to, to see what we could and what we could not do. Where could we get the lens and where we couldn't get it? And, a lot, and this was worked out ahead of time.
0: And uh, how many special effects vendors were there on the movie?
1: Well, I I don't know. You'd have to ask Kevin Mac. But there there was a few houses that were the main. We we had basically two um, people to refer to on the set. And the chief references to Kevin Mac and his team, and then to um, and then this was brought through to a couple of other people. But the the great thing about visual effects nowadays is they are so flexible. They are so extra... It's ex- it's an extraordinary experience to see how much they can do. There's so few restraints. It's really what you can do with it is how far one's imagination can can take the live action so that it can s- seamlessly integrate into what will be planned three, four months down the line. Case in point, if you have one of my favorite scenes is in the past known where the Hydra, the multi-headed Hydra, breathes fire and is stopped by Percy Jackson's power with water. So the colours of orange, red and blue and aqua I could use and they were then taken over by visual effects so that it seems so simple, but then when there's no fire, you've still got to have fire, sympathetic s- fire effects all over an enormous set. Or, or, or sympathetic water effects over an enormous set. So we did that in conventional ways, bouncing light-off-coloured metallic reflectors and, and that sort of stuff for fire, but we also did other things like using one or two very high-powered high, high power projectors to project flame effects and to project uh, water effects on the set so that later when uh, Visual Effects Digital Domain, for example, took that sequence over, they, they could... Uh, it 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 could look as if it's the same place. It's not just it was just plunked on after the fact,
0: right? So so you don't do you feel uh, ever uh, limited or restricted by the effects heavy nature of the piece in terms of I guess what I'm asking or do you, do you feel like you get locked into specific compositions and camera movements long before you even start shooting or do you feel like the effects because they're so advanced as you say aren't uh, I,
1: I I I'm I i did not feel that if if there were any specific requests they were usually so imaginative I couldn't I didn't quite know how to handle it. What was it achievable? Um, I didn't really feel constrained in any way. I felt challenged by it sometimes.
0: And how about uh, you know some of the things like uh, the digital extensions of the characters? Like for, for example, Uma Thurman plays Medusa and she has a head of computer-generated snakes, and Pierce Brosnan plays a character with the body of a horse. Um, During shooting, do you have other challenges involved in lighting scenes where you know a lot of the information is going to be painted in digitally later?
1: Uh, Well, in the case of Uma, she'd already worked out that she's having uh, conversations with the snakes on top of her head. So even though she's wearing a sort of blue dunce's cap with red dots on it, in her own imagination, she she was looking up at them and uh, chatting with them as uh, they they were interacting with her. I just thought that was fun, and I couldn't wait to see how it would all work out. Uh, but I lit her as beautifully as I could, or you know, as as uh, appropriately as as I could for the scene. So that wasn't a problem at all. With Pierce, basically, we had two problems: his height. Uh, as as a centaur, he had to, I don't know, be three or four feet higher than anybody else. And how on earth do you do that? And uh, also the fact that he uh, was a horse. You had to be very careful that as he moved in an interior space, his uh, hindquarters didn't knock over the furniture or he could get through a door or so on and so forth. But they weren't there. So we, we would just do simple things like measure it out. I mean, if, if there's a six-foot extension behind his back, then that—that that was space that an extra couldn't walk through or a character couldn't walk through. Had to always be aware of his physicality. He was as an actor, but he clearly couldn't in that space behind him. He was always clip-clopping backwards and forwards on stilts, believe it or not. But um, and he was very skilled at that, and it, it made an enormous difference to to how the. How the effects worked eventually, because he was always in movement, like, like a real horse. But they, these were they, these aren't irritating problems. They're fascinating to me. They're, it's it's a new world, and it's uh, it's a challenge, and it's it's really interesting.
0: You mentioned the way you lit Uma Thurman, and so, something that struck me about the film is that although it's a spectacle. Some of the most beautiful images in it are in the non-action scenes, dialogue sequences where the actors are lit just exquisitely. Uh, The performers all look consistently terrific, and I'm wondering if you have any kind of overall philosophy or technique when it comes to shooting portraiture, or does it vary from actor to actor and film to film?
1: It varies actor to actor depending on what they need, what the character needs, and film to film. I mean, this was a film, a romantic film, really, uh, not in the in the sense that it's it's uh, a love story, but it's it's a it's a sort of mythical background, and so I think I had license to make things beautiful, and they and the actors generally speaking were beautiful. So it's not that that was very hard. I, I I wanted to have an atmosphere. I don't really articulate it too well, but I had a picture in my head from testing of how I might make people look. And we, in pre-production, we did a lot of film stock testing. We we photographed many contenders for the various parts. And uh, I took that chance to try out firelight effects and candle effects and glow effects. And I mean, I think it's very good sometimes, when when you do a film like Closer, for example, which is so different, it's all grounded in reality uh for Mike Nichols, then my challenge is to make it real. And real real is often ugly. And so the, it it can look ugly. And that's a good thing. In a film like that, as Mike might say, the enemy of the film is gorgeous. Mm. Because it takes you outside the film. But on Percy Jackson, I think the friend of Percy Jackson is gorgeous because it brings you... Into it, it attracts you into a, a, an unknown world. So that's how I best explain it.
0: And you mentioned the the testing for the stocks. What film stocks did you end up uh, shooting with? Uh,
1: the majority of the film was shot on five two one nine, which is the great enemy of digital. It's such a beautiful stock. And then the others, I can't remember the uh, the Kodak designation, but it's the Vision Three Daylight stock, which is which is lovely too. I do like five two one nine, And then also I set up a system with Deluxe Vancouver that uh, I would, I had a dream, an HP dream color s- uh, display on set. I had one in my apartment in Vancouver and Richard Cordes, my color timer at Deluxe Vancouver at night had the identical monitor in, in his uh, color suite for timing dailies. All these monitors were, identical models and they were all calibrated by the same people and they have a system called uh, uh, cinema dailies which are high uh, hd dailies but they have a particular curve put onto them to make them emulate the the stocks in question whatever stocks you're using and uh, then we had a very high-end uh, projector in the uh in the studio where we could see dailies projected on a large screen at sufficient quality to be able to get an accurate color look film look film legal look as it were and also we could see uh, if there were any questions any problems with focus or aberrations of that of vibration that sort of stuff um the the, the thought of doing a, a film that costs a hundred billion dollars and not having real dailies projected and not seeing them every day makes my blood run cold. It happened. There are some very big films that have been made, which everyone viewed dailies on their, on their laptops. And no one ever sat together and really communicated. And I think that's one, a, a careless way of shooting, but two, uh, a bad way of getting a, a feeding amongst everyone. Of what. I like to sit beside the director and, and this is important to me, to know what is, succeeds as, uh, and what fails as what succeeds, and to be able to communicate with uh, the, uh, the production designer what he likes, what he doesn't like, how, what's working, how we can improve the next day's work or the next set in question. So, so all, of that, all of that is part and parcel of dailies. When I started, dailies would be, at, when I started work, and I was by no means the cinematographer, I was uh, I was sort of allowed to go to Daily so at Pinewood and Shepparton, they they would be for all the crew. And they were not sunk up, they would come in just raw, straight from the lab, at seven in the morning or eight in the morning, but in the big theatre at Pinewood, you saw your previous day's work, and then you saw it was sound at the end of the day. But it was such a great feedback, and I cannot fathom for the life of me why you wouldn't want to have this feedback when you're working in a visual medium. And, and it's all but disappeared. Many, many productions do not have organized dailies. And uh, it's, I think it's a, a terrible mistake.
0: Uh, the movie was shot in a widescreen aspect ratio. Did you shoot on uh, Super 35?
1: Yeah, Super 35. For uh, Actually, I I have shot Traditional anamorphic, and I'd like to do it again, but um, I can understand. And also, for for my sake, sometimes uh, if you shoot on super anamorphic, anything on on traditional anamorphic, anything below 2.8, it can look very marshy and horrible. And I had a lot of fire effects and candlelight to shoot on, and I was shooting at 2.5 and below on occasion, and so I wanted to have that in my back pocket. So we shot super 35 and as you know, it, it, it's uh, squeezed later on. And with the new stocks, you don't, you don't get the grain that was, uh, that was so obvious when, when the format first started being used. Did you ever
0: consider shooting in a digital format? Um,
1: well, I'm always considered. I can't wait to do it, frankly. by I just, my tests, my eye... I can't see that it's good enough yet for for how I like how I like to work for what i I see, but it's very close. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Uh, there's a lot of very elegant camera work in the movie. One of the Thank things you. one of the things I like about it is that you go against the current fashion for hyperactive, disorienting short takes and go for longer takes and more expansive compositions with movement that actually guides the eye and provides clarity. As opposed to a lot of movies now that just try to generate momentum through quick cuts and whip pans and handheld camera and all that kind of thing, what was your guiding principle in terms of camera movement and blocking on the film?
1: Oh, the story. I know it may may sound old fashioned. Look, a film doesn't have to a film doesn't have to be complicated to have a story. A narrative doesn't tension or 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 whatever movement doesn't have to come from the cutting. It, it, the camera can really talk to to the eye and can talk to the audience, and those are the sort of films I most admire, and uh, and if you like, those are the films I want to emulate. so it's not that I'm opposed to quick cuts. Of course, they can be wonderful for, for fight sequences and, and necessary. But not all the time. He'll, at, at, as in the same way that lighting should should and can vary its style. From, from highlight to, 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 to night to shadow and back again. So can camera movement. It may not be as an obvious a change, but the pace of the camera can and should, in my opinion, um, illuminate the, the, the script, the story, the dialogue.
0: So when you're shooting action sequences, how many, generally how many cameras are you you're using?
1: Well, it all depends. I mean, how it's organised. I my ideal is never to use more than one camera. I mean, but obviously on on action, safe at most three. We did have an extensive second unit, so they took over most, all virtually all of the sets, as as we moved on. So they, I think they use two or three cameras. But I I don't. The most cameras I've ever used is was seventeen on on Lethal Weapon two. <laughs> At least three of those or four of those cameras were backups for a set that cost a million dollars that was blown up in five seconds. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, yeah, sure, something like that when you got five seconds to to and you you needed to, to photograph the same set from three or four different angles and have backups, and you only had that that explosion then yes sure that then it's logical to use all these cameras but i mean it's not that unusual to have two or three people all wearing state cams on a set shooting each other
0: it's it's which is a hopeless way of shooting uh you mentioned lethal weapon 2 and and uh i'm curious you know you you did the first two lethal weapon movies and some other some other action films has your job on large scale productions like that changed considerably in the age of digital effects and and digital intermediates and all that?
1: Well, it's become a little easier I mean and also i'm I'm less nervous that somebody's going to get killed. When I was doing lethal there was the stunts were for real. there were no safeties. I mean the, the people really could get hurt Then when we got to bat, we could actually wear a tether and that could be painted out and that was a big deal and now that's that can be done routinely that's good i don't there's no need or no desire for anybody to get hurt however you do lose some of the excitement perhaps
0: i'm interested in how you worked with the actors on percy jackson because it's very heavily populated with young performers and are there challenges to working with actors who are new to the screen and might not be as aware of the technical requirements, especially yes. on an effects picture like this one?
1: Yes. I mean, they, they uh, it's really the question of hitting marks, finding the light and uh, getting the eyeline. And uh, they want to do well and they want to look well. and They want the scenes to cut well. So but it's just a matter of not everyone can be experienced. And just, just coaching them along. I don't see it as a problem, but uh, be, being articulate and uh, and kind and just to to help to help them see what they need to do. Fortunately, on Percy Jackson, there were real sets, enormous sets, but it meant that the
0: actors were in, uh, there was a reality. Moving into the, the post-production period of the movie, how involved are you with the CGI on a film like this? Are you present during any of the, post-production effects work? Just to a small extent. I mean, to the extent that I I made digital stills of
1: every sig- significant camera setup throughout the first unit photography. And this is for myself to to time dailies because I would then set, I would correct to to my taste, as it were, either on the, my monitor on the floor, although I didn't usually have enough time to do that. But at night, I would send those stills to the colorist and he would make his dailies. But because we had such a big second unit, those stills that I made that were reflected accurately in the day, these were then used as a reference for the uh, second unit. And then uh, when production was over, or actually during production, as the visual effects were being finalized or started, my stills were then put on hard drives and sent to vendors so that they could see what the original photography looked like, they'd have a, a dead reference. So my involvement with CGI was a means to—we called it sort of color bible. We had a couple of pre-timing sessions with Steve Scott from E who eventually completed the entire project with me. But uh, but we had early on we had some looks that we established for everyone to know in
0: what direction we were traveling. And so you mentioned you did the uh, the DI at at E Film. Um... What? How? How extensive was was the work on that? How? I, I guess what I'm asking is basically just what was uh, what? What did your role become on the film in the the latter stages in uh, post production?
1: Well, it 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 actually it was the most extensive use of the digital intermediate that I've experienced since I did Angels in America. I was I was actually employed on this for about ooh about ten weeks. Because what, what was happening is that visual effects were coming in. We had to integrate them into the live action and then correct any problems. We'd find problems. We'd, have, we'd get back to visual effects and say we can see uh, hair here or we can't see a shadow there and so on and so forth. There was a high pressure and it was seven days a week for the last uh, five weeks to get it all done. So I, I was very happy that I could not only protect my work as in a selfish way, but also to to help all the film's images, whether they were mine or whether they were digital domains or whoever's of Kevin, you know, to help the film so that everything looked of a piece. And uh, we carried this all the way through to film out. So I was able to look at prints and make sure that each reel was working and so on and so
0: forth. It, It was an ideal situation. Do you find that on other films the, the studio doesn't want the cinematographer as involved uh, for that long in the post production process?
1: Oh, they'd love, they'd love to have you involved if, if, as long as you didn't charge for it. <laughs> I mean, they, they. I mean, but I was, I was paid and welcomed, and it was, it was an integral part of the post production experience. Um, yes, I mean, there's always budget questions and uh, I can understand that on a, on a lower budgeted movie, but um, yeah, there, there, are, there are various uh, studio to studio, producer to producer. Um, I think, I hope that this will change because the DI has so universal now over the last five years that it's a necessary part of uh, of the post-production, and I don't really know who else is supposed to do it. I mean, if the input of the cinematographer is important when you make the film, surely it's just as important when you finish. Of course, if it's not important when you make the film, then it's not important when, it, when you complete either. So it's the same riddle.
0: I think that's a good note to end on, so uh, thanks so much for, uh, for talking with me about Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Lightning Thief. It's a terrific movie. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks a lot.